Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. It feels like it has been so long <laughs> since we've done this, doesn't it? it? Yeah, it really does. But like, not long since we've seen each other. So it's a little bit, it's a little um, disori- disorienting. It's weird. We have so much content from the roughly two weeks it's been since you heard from us that it's going to take us three episodes. Three, Dude, that's more than This Is Horror does. For, for yeah, like we're, a topic, right? <laughs> we're one-upping them. Um, yes. We could, yeah. Um, we, you, you might even call it an extreme uh, episode. <laughs> I love so, it. Yeah. I love it. We are back from StokerCon 2017, which took place in Long Beach, California, uh, April 29th through May 1st, roughly, right? Does that sound right? 29th, 30th, 28th, maybe? 20-something through the, I think it's through the 30th, yeah. Yeah, maybe that's what yeah. it was. But uh, for, Rob and for I, for, for really something that doesn't happen very often where we go and leave town and bring back content, well, you got it this time, guys. Yeah, whether you like it or not, you are going to get a ton, a ton of content um, interviews and some other stuff as well. I don't even know why I'm being vague about it. We're doing the panel, <laughs> right? We are, our yeah. panel so... about horror and podcasting. In the event that you're not interested in any of this, don't worry. It's not going to be three episodes in a row. We're going to break it up for you over the next month or so. Um, But tonight, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about StokerCon, and we're going to bring you two interviews, and and we're not going to be vague. Ellen Datlow and John Skip interviews coming up later in this episode. Not much later, because Rob and I have a whole other podcast that we're behind on doing (laughs) that we need to get to. So, (laughs) Um, Do you want to talk about the alternate conversation? conference that you came up with while we were out there or is that for another episode i think we'll leave that i haven't had enough to drink (laughs) for that one yet so um maybe another episode but uh yeah rob and i flew out to um california and and attended um for once we attended the actual conference for something we went to we didn't just hang out at like the nearby bars or um, just sit in a hotel room. We actually went to StokerCon, which took place on the queen mary the world's most haunted ship yeah, it's haunted by fucking like you know um, upkeep trouble, maintenance issues. <laughs> yeah. Ah, <laughs> uh, so yeah, Long Beach, California thought for some reason it was a good idea to invest a shit ton of money in rehabbing a, an old boat to make it into a hotel when they could have done other things like purchase a sports team or something and. Clearly, that is not uh, that is not done well for the city of Long Beach. Um, Rob, would you like to explain some of the things maybe we heard from guests or things we witnessed ourselves on the boat? Yeah. So one of the ones that sticks out in my mind is um, uh, there was some stuff that Ellen Datlow, who you're going to hear tonight, was talking about. Um, um, things were getting wet. Like everything was getting wet everywhere. We were talking to Chuck Wendig. And was Chuck the one that was talking about the wet toilet paper? Yes, yes, it was. <laughs> things would just become randomly wet. Other things, because you know, would just like end up getting knocked around and stuff. Um, I believe, and I don't know if this is something that made it into the interview or not. I don't think it would be. Um, one of our one of our interviewees was telling us about how they had called for for something hangers. They'd ask for more hangers, and then someone shows up for maintenance to fix the toilet, which there was no problem with. So it was just, like, general disorder. But, like, on an epic scale, this is a really big boat. So, like, it, it's almost, like, so much disorder that, like, it's, it's like, they had to do it on purpose. <laughs> 
Yeah, it, it's weird because clearly the Horror Writers Association and, and the Stoker Con board of directors or, or whatever chose it for ambiance, right? Like if you're going to have a, a horror writers convention, what better place than like a really haunted ship? Seems brilliant. On Until the you surface, stay in a hotel room. Yeah, yeah <laughs> so. the surface. Now, my experience was, I guess our experience was better because we didn't suffer through staying on the boat. Like we chose a pretty swanky pad to live in um, while we were there. And they still attend the conference, and the Uber rides were pretty cheap. So, oh, Uber, Uber is like not the nicest one right now. So, yeah, we used Uber. Who cares? Anyway, um, do we have? Is there pro- uh, maybe you and I'll talk offline about problem with Uber? <laughs> My experiences were, were fantastic with Uber while I was there, including it's a little weird, and, and nobody else seems to think it's really weird that I got picked up in a goddamn Lexus. I mean, for one the... of my Uber rides. Yeah, yeah. That's just. It seems like uh, it seems like having someone deliver pizza to your house in a in a you know I don't know in like a, Lexus? a Mercedes or something. Oh well, yeah, or in a Lexus. So. <laughs> uh, well, you know, they Weird. thought you were like you know the prince of Romania or something, and they wanted to treat you with the uh, the appropriate amount of respect. I think. Uh, I I believe that they succeeded if that was indeed their goal. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh, um, while we're while we're talking about stuff, I do want to put a little disclaimer while we're in like the world of like things are weird. Um, there's probably going to be some new sounds on my side of the world as far as this recording goes, because I am not at home in Illinois, like uh, where I usually record. I'm in my kind of summer gig out in California. So some of the changes are that I have an upstairs neighbor. So we might hear some stomping around. Earlier today, my na- my upstairs neighbor, it sounded like was very ineffectually trying to assemble IKEA furniture. Like there was lots of like repetitive noises and thumps and thuds and stuff. So I don't know. But anyway. Um, yeah, we'll blame yeah. that on the ghosts of the Queen Mary that followed you home. Ghosts of the Queen Mary followed me home, tried to assemble furniture, failed. And um, that's the sound you're hearing on this podcast. If there's anything, there might not be anything. It might not, it might come through great, but um, I just want to account for any weird noises that might might pop up on my side. We're gonna get into these two interviews and maybe a little more talk about StokerCon, or maybe a little more talk about the cool stuff we did outside of StokerCon um, when we get back. But Rob, do you want to kick it off with a bio? All right. So the first interview you're gonna hear is from Ellen Datlow, and here is her bio, her very truncated bio. Because the bio that she gave us, I swear to you, it could could qualify for some short story contest, but not all of them. Ellen Datlow has been editing science fiction, fantasy, and horror short fiction for over 30 years. She currently acquires short fiction for Tor.com. In addition, she has edited more than 50 science fiction, fantasy, and horror anthologies, including the series Best Horror of the Year, The Doll Collection, The Monstrous Nightmares, A New Decade of Modern Horror, Children of Lovecraft, Black Feathers, Dark Avian Tales, and Haunted Nights with Lisa Morton. Forthcoming are the Saga Anthology of Ghost Stories and Devil and the Deep. Arguably um, the most well-known editor in horror, right? I don't even think it's arguably. I think you can just say, yeah, she's just the most (laughs) well-known editor in horror, yeah. All right, well, I wanted someone to fight me on it. I was ready to fight somebody. But that's okay then. If it's not arguable, then that, that is what it is. <laughs> someone, someone might bring it, so we can keep the argument really in there if you want. 
to keep this uh, shorter for you guys, we're just going to give you John Skip's bio um, as well. And then those two interviews will run together. We'll be back to talk about those fine folks and uh, who knows, maybe a little bit more about StokerCon. John Skip is a New York Times bestselling novelist, two-time Stoker Award-winning anthologist and co-director uh, on the feature film Tales of Halloween. A born troublemaker and compulsive collaborator, his early work was at the forefront of 80s splatterpunk revolution. His 1989 anthology, Book of the Dead, laid the foundation for modern post-Romero zombie literature. And he continues to inspire and foment insurrection as acquiring editor for Eraserhead, Deadite, and his own Fungasm Press, which we're going to talk quite a bit about during the interview. Uh, Fungasm is dedicated to works of unclassifiable genre-breaking ass-kickitude. Um, one, all right. So while we're doing noise disclaimers, I think it, it makes sense before we go into the interviews to point out that, um, one of, I think the ghost of the queen Mary had kind of double booked our room, uh, when we were supposed <laughs> to be interviewing John Skip. And so <laughs> double book just sounds like it should be so much sexier than it actually Especially coming from us. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. John. Yeah. We got double booked in a way, way less sexy way than, than. We, we like to double book people. So um, we kind of scrambled around for a place. And in, in retrospect, maybe we could have gone just outside or whatever. Um, but we found what we thought was going to be a nice quiet hallway because there was nothing going on. There was no rooms that were kind of attached. It just kind of ran to a bathroom and then like you know, like a utility door. And we're thinking, all right, this is perfect. It wasn't perfect. <laughs> It was less than perfect. There is the squeakiest door on the entire boat that you'll hear. You may hear some toilets flushing in the background because we were across from a restroom. And at one point, a crazed John Skip fan actually breaks in on our interview. So you definitely want to stick yeah. around for all that. Unapologetically. Unapologetically just breaks in. So um, uh, the John Skip one may be a little bit noisy and weird, but um, the content, fantastic and definitely worth it. All right, here is our interview with Ellen Datlow, followed immediately by our interview with John Skip. Ellen, thanks for joining us on Booked here from StokerCon 2017. Thanks for having me on. All right. We're going to get right into it. Um, when we were formulating questions for the interviews we were doing, I realized that there were two people that we were planning on interviewing that had a, 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 the same perspective as us in that they don't write necessarily or don't write fiction, mm -hmm. um, but have to deal with writers and authors <laughs> and fiction a lot. So it occurred to us that um, we should find out from someone who has the same perspective, hopefully, or a similar perspective as us. How do you feel your perspective is different than, than the writers that you work with? Completely different, and that's what's good about it. Um, as an editor, I don't have any... Of course, every editor has a bias. Every reader has a bias of some sort. <clears throat> but I can separate myself from... When I'm working with some... I can separate myself from the story and what the writer wants. My job as an editor is to bring out the best in a particular story, if it's an original story that hasn't been published yet. And I feel I can do this because I have nothing invested in it. I know that there are a lot of... There have been a lot of writers slash editors who would try to rewrite, in either consciously or unconsciously, or rewriting the story the way they would write it, and that's not what an editor should be doing. Um, so I think, in that sense, I consider myself as an editor and I, the ideal reader. I can give you an example of something of what I told someone who challenged me about this. Richard Christian Matheson, who is a friend and who has written for me in the past, years ago we met for lunch. When, it was when I was still working at Omni, and we had lunch, and he said, how can you be an editor if you don't write? 
And I kind of looked at him astounded, saying, uh, that's why I'm a better editor, because I don't write. I mean, they're totally different skills. I could not create something to save my life. But I, I'm a photographer also, and I realize that's so related to editing. I need something to work with that has, I need something to start with. Something has to be there. And I can move furniture, it's like moving furniture around. To, if I had to furnish an entire apartment empty, which I'm sure I did decades ago, but it happened lately, I would be kind of not great at it. I'd have to figure out, well, where does everything go? And moving things around a lot. <clears throat> but if I find an, a furnished apartment, I can say, this should go there, this should go there. I don't like how that is. And that's the same thing with editing. Um, the words are there, and I can see something is wrong here. It needs to be moved. And the same thing, with, as I said, with photography. I'm good at photographing things that exist, mm -hmm. but I could never draw anything. Aside from the fact I can't do technology, technique of drawing, mm -hmm. I have nothing to write about. I have nothing to paint. You know, but I can photograph what exists. And with editing, I can work with what exists. So, with that being considered, I agree. Um, there's one thing that that I've always thought uh, in our experience, in you know, interacting with lots of authors, and some of them are also editors, and some of them are also publishers. That the rare, it's not common enough that someone is focused just on editing. being an editor. But um, that being said, um, any examples of people who um, do excel as being a writer who is also an editor? I was just going to say, yes, there are many people who have in the past and who can now. I mean, Gardner Dozois is supposed to be a fantastic story doctor, you know, and I assume when he's worked with people, he does not inject himself into the story. I mean, basically, if you are a, a writer slash editor, you have to make sure you're not injecting your biases, your writing style, your tone, your ideas into that story. You can make suggestions, but you have to, otherwise you're overwhelming the writer. And there have been examples, of course, um, in the past. I think, I mean, I don't remember the specific examples. I mean, maybe with um, The Cold Equations, I think, by Tom Godwin, his editor might have made him change it and it made into a classic story. So there are excellent, there have been and there still are excellent writers slash editors, but they have to be really be careful, they really do, to not impose their will on or their style on the writer. Uh, yeah, a discipline that probably lots of people don't, don't have. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. can imagine. In fact, I have found that that was a problem with someone, um, I won't give you an example of that, but with no names. When I was at Omni, a writer submitted a story through the agent and I liked the story, but I wanted to edit it, and I was very concerned about, I had heard that this person was difficult to deal with. So I was like, oh, it's like, uh-oh. So I mentioned, luckily, I don't like dealing with agents, usually in this case it was a good thing, because I was able to say to the agent, well, I heard that that person, mm -hmm. I'll say they rather than she or sure, he, right? they, <laughs> they um, were hard to deal with. And I said, well, actually, the situation that happened is the editor who want, basically rewrote the person's story. I said, oh, okay, <laughs> that makes sense, no wonder. And the person sure. turned out to be very easy to work with. Yeah. So this kind of ties into this previous question. Is there, do you find, I don't know if I, I like the way this is worded, but do you have trouble separating the business of publishing from your relationships to authors? I understand from things I've read and I've heard you on other interviews, you know, that you have very good relationships with authors. Usually. How does that affect? Well, well but, but that's what I'm saying. So do you have, is there trouble separating even an author that you don't get along with um, 
that, that maybe I, I today ran into an author whose personal beliefs I, I, I disagree with. I, I, not you somebody can, I would get along with, but I still think no, he's a brilliant writer. It depends on how strongly their beliefs come across in their fiction. If I find, if I see a brilliant story that I do, or these days I don't, I solicit who I want mm -hmm. in a way. Which so, is, yeah. but on the other hand, if I, for the best horror, I don't. I mean, I read everything, and if it's by someone whose politics I don't mm -hmm. like. I may not even know their politics, but I'm still going to take the story if it's brilliant. On the other hand, if they're pol I, I can't make the judgment if their politics is so extreme what I would do. That is a whole different issue. Um, a lot of my writers become friends. The hardest thing is to turn down stories by your friends, but you have to do it as an editor. I mean, that's what I see the mistake that small press people make. They buy everything. They buy their friends' work, whether it's good or bad, and they don't obviously don't have the balls to like say, you, it's not good enough, you can't, I, or it's not right for this. Right. And being an editor is saying no. I mean, most of being an editor is like, get this off my desk. I, you know, I have to. <laughs> more, I, I have too much to stuff no here. I mean, I, yes. you can't. Yeah. Well, yeah, in a way, because you can't put everything in whatever you're working on. Sure. If you have a magazine, you still have limited space. If you have an anthology of limited space, um, you can't buy everything that comes in. Um, even sometimes, if it's really good, but it's totally wrong for the venue. Um, so, in that sense, yeah, I can separate it, but it hurts me. It, it hurts you. No one likes turning down people's work, especially if you're close to them. He does. I you do. do. Yeah, he enjoys that kind <laughs> of stuff, quite honestly. But if it's someone who's, who you're friends with, and usually they understand. Every once in a while you have someone who is a friend who's like really sensitive. Oh, you hate my writing. It's like, if I hated the story, I wouldn't have said I liked it. Mm -hmm. I just can't use it. You know, I know you can sell it. You know, and they're just weird you know, about it. But you know, So then you make a choice. Do I ever want to see anything by this person again if they're giving me a hard time every time I turn something down? You know, it may, that's what that's where the business comes in. How much, how much of a pain in the ass are you willing to deal with if someone is a pain in the ass? <laughs> you know, are they worth dealing with? Now, if it was a writer who I didn't really like and didn't want to work with, if the story was perfect, I would still probably buy it um, or acquire it. But if I'd have to work with the person, I have to I have to make the decision: Can this person is this person cooperative? And it's always a problem, not a problem, it's always a worry with new writers when I buy a story from a new writer, I mean a writer who I've never worked with before, I have no idea how they're going to take my editing. And I forget, with the people I've edited a lot, I'm just kind of straightforward, like, oh, that, you know, this is awkward, change this. You know, I'm, I don't make nice unless I remember, because I figure, well, they're used to, you know, they know what I want, and they know I like their work, or I wouldn't have bought it, or I wouldn't have said, I want to buy it if you do this. But a new writer, and especially a young, a, a new writer in the sense of just starting out, I have to remember, be kind. When I'm saying, when I'm being critical, make sure that I'm, I remind them that I love the story. And that's something on me that sometimes I forget. And you have to remember. I would imagine that as a, as a newer writer, that that, that a, a blow from you could be crushing if not handled the right way. And right. that's that's yeah. that you know. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. that's not. I've yeah. submitted it to some anonymous um, publisher. You know, something I picked up on whatever that website is uh, where you submit submittable or whatever, and you get it back and you go out. Oh, whatever, I'm going to move on. Um, I guess from the perspective of we primarily do reviews. Um, Oh, well, we've definitely given negative <laughs> reviews to books of people that we've known a long time, and relationships have survived. Sometimes they don't. But yeah, in one case, 
in, back in Omni when Bob Sheckley was a fiction editor and I was the associate fiction editor with him, usually stories came to me first, but in this case, Michael Shara, who wrote The um, Killer Angels, who won the Pulitzer for it, which was a nonfiction book, I believe, about the Civil War, he sent a story into Bob and Bob turned it down. And, and they were apparently long old friends, and Michael never talked to him again. But that's really un so unprofessional. It's like, really? Are you kidding me? You know, you can't take a turn down. But anyway, um, some people get bent out of shape when you turn their stories down, whether they're friends or not. And it's like, that's not very professional. No, not at all. And, and even... Oh, and the other thing... Oh, sorry, go ahead. I, I think even just like I said, when you don't like somebody, there's still that, that professional decorum. Well, I can sure. talk to somebody I'm not a big fan right. of and, right. and still carry out an interview or review their book objectively, as I was mentioning mm -hmm. earlier. Right. A great writer, not somebody I think I would hang out with and have a beer. Right. Um, but... Yeah. And I was saying about reviews, okay, I've been doing the year's best fantasy mm -hmm. horror or the best horror for like, oh God, almost 30 years now. <laughs> And initially, if you look back probably in my older books, I was much more negative. I would give many more negative comments about not about things. And then my editor, who was actually the packager at the time, said, are you sure you want to do that? It's not like a magazine where your review goes away. This is a book that'll last for 30 years. These, you could really make enemies. Why don't you just do, I mean, you're doing the year's best. Why talk about things you hate? Because it's so much more fun, that's well, why. That's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I did yeah, take I what he said mm -hmm. to heart, and I rarely, when I do negative things, when I say negative things, it's usually, um, I'm not going to say, oh, I hate this book, or I just won't cover it, or I hate that this editor's terrible. But I will call out bad production. And I've done it, This oh, yeah. the one that's coming out this year, uh, I'm sorry, the year's, my best horror that's coming out this year takes to test someone a production job that's on the Stoker ballot. It's one of the worst production jobs I've ever seen. <clears throat> and I mean like missing bios, missing pages. I mean, not missing pages, not the table of content no. not matching. I mean, just crap. Yeah. It's like, how can you even publish something like this? And that I will definitely criticize. Sorry about that. That I will definitely, I, I bang the table and they don't want me to do that. It's the ghost, it's the ghost of the Queen Mary, it's not me. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, I mean, that's something I will criticize because it should be criticized. And I've always also taken to task. I do not like the idea of editors using their own stories. Now, the only reasons people could do it or should do it, I think, um, I mean, in anthologies, original anthologies, um, you sh sometimes when it's a really, really big name, author slash editor, they're published, part of the publishing deal forces them to do books. that. Yeah, yeah. That's, I get it. But, Basically, you are taking a space from someone else. Your name is not that big. I mean, I see this from I, one anthology several years ago. The publisher had, he, the publisher was not the editor, but the publisher had two stories, two and a half stories in there. Excuse me, excuse me? I mean, that's such a conflict of interest. Yeah, it's yeah. like, that is so, you know, and you know the stories aren't going to be that great. Mm -hmm. I mean, you just know. As soon as someone <laughs> has a story in there, I know it's going to be eh. That story got turned down other places is what happens, and then it ends up in your own I book. I mean, or they, it makes you seem like you're publishing the book so you can publish yourself. Yeah, yeah there's an integrity piece there where it's like... Keep well, there have been arguments. Them. I mean, we've had arguments about that on Facebook a lot. And there are exceptions, but the exceptions prove the rule. They yeah. don't do it. You know? Sure, yeah. 
Although I'm not familiar with your personal feelings on self-publishing, I get the feeling that, that, that I, I have an idea. But we've seen self-publishing um, become very popular and prevalent, and then we've seen a little bit of a pullback in it. Mm -hmm. Where do you feel that self-publishing fits into the overall publishing? I think when a, when a writer has a following and they are having trouble selling a particular thing, that, that, that they have already have a publishing career, and they want to do something really weird or offbeat, and they either can't sell it or don't really want to do it through their publisher. Um, I don't see anything wrong with it as long as you, they treat it as a professional thing and get it cop edited, copy edited, proofread, and a decent production job. Um, I mean, there are plenty of small press publishers who are not self-publishing who are terrible. It's That's, all we've it, had it, that conversation. Right. I mean, so, yeah. I mean, so. the only the. The thing about self-publishing, of course, is anyone can do it. Just like the thing about an, and being an editor or doing an anthology, anyone can do it. Um, once you had small press publishing, anyone can become a publisher. <clears throat> if you're doing, your, if you're self-publishing, do you know how to market your stuff? Otherwise, how is anyone going to know it exists? If you have an existing career, then you can do it. And some people, some people who are big names may want to do it once in a while, but they still have to have a support system because do you really want to be doing the marketing and everything yourself. And that's why people, Amanda, the, the one who did it from the very beginning, oh, I we talked <coughs> was selling books from her the back of yep. her truck. She, hocking, hocking mm -hmm. yep. she eventually went to a traditional publisher because she didn't want to be selling her book all the time. Yeah. She wanted well, to be writing. Do you want to be a writer money. or do you want yeah. to be a publisher? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, how, I mean, if you have unlimited time in your life, then yeah, sure, go ahead and do it. And you can sell your book from door to door. But you know, that most writers don't have that luxury. You know, and I don't see any. And try to sell it to someone first, and try to sell it to someone who you trust first. You know, do your research for any new writer. Don't go with the first one. Don't necessarily go with the first publisher that offers you a contract. And Read we've the seen contract. That a lot I've too. seen that yeah. happen a lot. It's like, why did you go with that publisher? They barely exist, and they went. They'll go in, They went out of business in two years. Mm -hmm. First, try the more credible publishers. So, I mean, publishing, self-publishing, some things have been very successful and very good, but mostly they're still not, and it's because there's no oversight. There's no, there needs to be a gatekeeper. There's a reason that editors exist. They exist to help readers, writers not fall off the net. It's kind of funny because from the perspective of a reader, which is really what our podcast is about, is like we are readers we don't have any stake in the you know right. the game of being a writer we have a stake in reading a good book right. that's so what do well you produced see? and How so do you like i have <laughs> strong opinions about there should be an editor that's just an editor there should be publishers who are just publishers and designers be, for Christ's sake. yeah and so like <laughs> the the thought that if you're self publishing you have to be a great writer a great editor a great publisher, a great marketer, and like a designer as well for the mm -hmm. book design, how often are, are you going to find the person that can do all of that stuff? Mm. So, a quarter of a percent. Yeah. <laughs> so I lean toward, I mean, like, that doesn't mean you'll never get a good book that's self-published. No, of course not. And it's not, the, there's nothing wrong with self-publishing per se. Right. I mean, it's what you, what we see that comes out of it, and most of it's not very good. Yeah. And it's for a reason, the reasons you said. Yeah. <laughs> 
I heard you on a podcast recently talk about um, purchasing translations, and and then that turned into a broader conversation about purchasing from different cultures mm-hmm. and, and different groups of people, and and inviting more women and and other non traditionally published um, um, people authors to um, to submit. That's not the right term, but I know what you mean. I, I'm, and as I said, I have I have this I have this idea of a question here that I'm trying to kind of formulate. My question really comes down to: Do you find that there are groups of people? that see a type of story differently because of their backgrounds or culture. So when I was trying to explain this to Rob yesterday, I said, you know, I think South Koreans have nailed the revenge movies. That's how I mm-hmm. feel about it. They mm-hmm. do revenge movies in a very different and quite honest for me, better mm-hmm. way mm-hmm. than anybody else I've seen do. Okay. You know, French people do crime movies in a okay. different way that typically is received very mm-hmm. well. Do you see any of that in horror and or science fiction? That, and not necessarily that I'm asking you to pick a particular <coughs> group that South mm-hmm. Africans do, you know, right. sci-fi better than anybody. Right. I'm not finding that. I, I, I've been reading a lot of stories well, there, there are two things, stories in translation, but stories from the diaspora, which are the people who are British Indian or Pakistani, um, Asian, I, know, I mean, different mixes and who do not live in the country where they came from, where they're in. And no, I mean, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. I don't, I have not noticed it, that a particular group does something better than another in fiction. But and that's, that's but that's answer. I mean that's my limited mm-hmm. scope. Sure. But, you know, obviously I don't read everything, and I mostly you concentrate read more reading. than most. Well, I, I mostly concentrate on horror. I don't <laughs> read. I hardly read any science mm-hmm. fiction. But um, I think what you were getting at was almost like um like like a storytelling dialect. No, right? I know I understand, yeah, okay, and cool. I don't know. I mean yeah. that's what I'm not seeing. Sure. Or, and it's I, possible that it or, doesn't. Or exist. I haven't thought it's about it, so it's possible it just hasn't sunk in. You know, I mean, some of the writers who I've worked with, Priya Sharma, for example, who's British Indian, um, she writes about everything. She doesn't write only about, she actually hardly ever writes about her culture, I mean, her, her ancestry. Stephen Graham Jones, he hardly ever writes about Native American stuff. And Usman T. Malik, who is um, a Pakistani writer, who's a doctor full time, um, he has not always written. Well, the two things he wrote for me are, but. He doesn't. I guess he does use his background more, but many don't. You know, they don't, or they don't always. And I don't think they should. They should write what they want. Right. They shouldn't feel constrained mm-hmm. from writing whatever they want. Basically, I mean, I don't think any writer should feel constrained about writing about other cultures as long as they are sensitive to those cultures, whether they're in the dominant culture or not. Thank you again for giving us some of your time. Thank I'm you. sure you have a very very busy schedule. Just today. So. Uh, John, thanks for taking some time out of your your trip to StokerCon to hang out in a, a hallway with us and by talk a bathroom. A bit about, yeah, by yeah. a bathroom. So yeah, thanks for joining us. You got it, man. This is a, these are luxury digs. <laughs> I'll, I'll stand next to this bathroom anytime. <laughs> um, tell us a little bit about the workshop that you're going to be uh, hosting here in just a few minutes. I think it was something like how to write like a scenerist. Yeah, okay. Um, I remember we were struggling with the word scenerist yesterday when we were putting the questions <laughs> together. So. Basically, um, scenerist is somebody who constructs scenes to be played, uh, a, a filmmaker, a, a screenwriter, a playwright, mm-hmm. or um, even you, you could say a, a comics person. And uh, writing, th- th- this workshop is about writing fiction that is playable. Uh, for actors, for characters, 
Um, and so what I'm secretly doing, I, I created a scenario wherein um, I asked this, uh, the, the classmates to write a short piece where, um, written in first person, where your first person character and one other character are walking towards a door or a gate or something. And um, there may be some danger in between, but you definitely want to get through the door. And you want to communicate most of this, particularly in the setup, through dialogue. And so then, you know, I've got like 13 students uh, with this simple scenario doing 13 completely different stories, which is awesome just to begin with. And that always kind of shows people that, uh, you know, no one person is going to tell the same story the same way. Mm -hmm. But then, as they sent their stories in, I read the stories, and then I uh, made a, a document in which I peeled out everything but the dialogue so that only the dialogue is left, and I'm going to have two actors read that shit out loud uh, and show if it plays or not. And then that has to be so different from just... I, I mean, I say I never thought about it. You know, I watch movies and TV shows, and I read a lot of books, but I didn't think about how different it has to be structured, I guess, and, and that's exactly what you're, what what, you're what, going to illustrate to some people who are going to find it... Um, maybe find that they didn't realize how different it was either. It's revelatory. I mean, you, you really, really learn a lot. There are very few fiction writers whose dialogue from a book can translate directly to the screen um, and vice versa. A lot of times stuff that, uh, uh, that plays well on the page in a book is just laughable out loud. And uh, by the same token, stuff that, that works really, really well on screen looks like remedial crayon scrawling, uh, you know, uh, when, when you actually put it into prose. Um, I, I've done a couple of things where I'll write a, a screenplay for a movie that I want to direct and then um, have such a hard time getting it made that I'll just write the fucking book so that I got to tell the story the way I wanted to <laughs> uh, at least once. And then if the movie gets made, cool. And I've just made the best argument for it. But what I would do, uh, th this was what the case with a book called The Long Last Call, which was originally a screenplay. It's a, a titty bar horror movie. Um, all goes down in real time. And no, no vampires. Um, and uh, I think it's the only titty bar horror film with no vampires in it, except, <laughs> I, yeah. except for maybe titty bar zombies. They, they may show up somewhere. Um, but anyway, so I, I, I took the script, 90-page script, and uh, um, turned all of the, the, um, the descriptive writing you know, in between the chunks of dialogue and put it into paragraph form, all of the dialogue, and put it into you know, quotation marks. And I had a... Uh, I had a short book that sucked, uh, totally sucked. Uh, but I had the whole story there, and then what I had to do was do what... You had an outline. You had a solid outline. I had a solid him. outline. Yep. And then you fill in all of the other stuff um, with you know literary quality prose, uh, presumably. And um, what you realize, if, if you hadn't thought about this before, is that... Uh, when you're a filmmaker, okay, when you're a director, um, you take the words off the page, then you have to integrate it with the actors who are going to read those lines, the cameraman who's also going to be helping you determine the lighting and the sound design, the production designers that put everything on the walls that you're going to actually be shooting, uh, the musicians, the costume people, the, uh, the makeup people and hair, the special effects people, the, the blood wranglers, uh, all of that shit. 
When you're a novelist, you have to do all that fucking stuff yourself, uh, and you have to do it with nothing but words. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it really, it just puts things in a perspective that I, I, I think is useful, particularly for people who are interested in working in film or having their, their books adapted someday. It's just playability. So that's what my fucking workshop's about. Um, so I guess I have heard people in the past when they were trying to perfect the dialogue in their, their prose and their like novels or stories or whatever, um, basically extract dialogue in order to read it out loud right. so that it sounded yes. legitimate and that would strengthen their, their story. Yes. Is that, but it sounds like that sometimes spoken dialogue doesn't always translate to written dialogue well. Is that part of what you're thinking here? Well, what you need to do is, is establish the balance. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, because the primary objective of the book is to be readable. Yeah. You know, to be enjoyable. You, nobody else has to do anything else. You read the book and, and, and it did its job. Yeah, and very, very few people are, are good at that. If, if you've ever read any William Goldman, um, he wrote The Princess Bride. Okay. He, he wrote Marathon Man and Magic with Anthony Hopkins and various other things. Magic is a really particularly fascinating case in point. That's the one where Anthony Hopkins is a ventriloquist with a dummy named Fats. Uh, and... Um, and it's a, a psychological horror movie. I was going to say, that sounds pretty creepy. <laughs> it's awesome. It's a 70s film. Uh, highly recommended. Uh, it's, uh, it's Anthony Hopkins and Margaret Burgess Meredith. Terrific cast. Uh, amazing script. And what's weird is if you watch the movie and then you read the book, the dialogue is verbatim. It is fucking verbatim. Wow. Word for word. You could, you, and that is so rare. Um, and it's such a gift, and it's one that uh, that I try to cultivate. Because the nice thing is, is if you can do that, if you can do both, if it plays no matter what idiom you're you're running it in, that's pretty damn good dialogue. Um, and well, and it's half the work because you don't have to rewrite it. You don't have to rewrite it. Yeah, you <laughs> can just bounce quarters off that shit. That's why people love. <laughs> that's why people love Elmore Leonard. Like they want to adapt his yeah, stuff yeah. because his stuff is right there. You, you can take it. You can just slap it right down. Tarantino didn't even have to work, you know, to adapt that shit in, in many ways. That was probably the easiest script he ever did. Although the hard thing would be being faithful and being right and making sure that you made filmic choices and not just try to ape a book. Where, where it's not going to work. Um, man, uh, Brian Smith wrote a book called 68 Kill, um, and uh, Trent Haga just directed a version of it that's uh, playing festivals right now. I'm here to tell you that's one of the best fucking movies you're going to see this year. Uh, and I haven't read the book. Sounds really familiar. Yeah, it sounds like something yeah. I've heard of recently. Yeah. Uh, uh, Trent did such a great job of adapting this thing. Now I'm dying to read the book just to see where, where he changed things. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, yeah, Trent's definitely a dude that, that gets it, that, that gets the difference, and, and is one of those one of those rare filmmakers that is also a voracious reader, because mm-hmm. uh, Hollywood is not known for its reading ability. <laughs> um, you know, they'd much rather have you tell them about the story, or even better, show you pictures of it, um, so they don't have to... What's two very different target audiences. I mean, I watch movies and I read books, but I look for very different things in, in both, but sometimes sure. one works in both, and that's where you have the, the stuff that winds up being my favorite, at least. I don't want to speak for anybody else, but the stuff that really yeah. resounds with people. So, Let's talk a little bit about Splatterpunk. What about it? 
How do you think it's evolved since its early days back back in the 80s? Because we've seen what I feel is like maybe a little bit of a resurgence. I don't think it ever went away, but it seems like it's gained popularity again in the last few years. Well, the term certainly has. I'm not sure. Here's the weird thing, man. This comes up a lot. Um, I think people remember the splatter, but they forget the punk, which was the, the subversive element of it. Uh, which involves political and social and cultural uh, values above and beyond how far your blood squirts when uh, you get axed in the head. Uh, and that's the thing. Um, I'm not sure I'm seeing very much splatterpunk at all. Uh, I think a lot of what I'm seeing is extreme horror, which uh, sprung uh, organically from Splatterpunk and from which Splatterpunk also sort of sprang uh, in its filmic versions or, or certain writerly iterations. But um, yeah, I don't... In a lot of ways, Splatterpunk was a very specific spontaneous eruption in the arts that happened when a bunch of different writers started writing crazy shit at the same time without any awareness of each other. So, I mean, like, Scott was doing his stuff, David J. Scott was doing his stuff in L.A., uh, Joe Lansdow was doing his stuff in Texas, um, Clyde Barker was doing his stuff in, in London, and uh, Spectre and I were doing our stuff in, in New York City uh, at right about the same time, and they all sort of uh, went bingo at the same time, but it wasn't a, a calculated or calibrated movement to begin with. Uh, it was just sort of a thing that happened, and uh, and the only reason we call it Splatterpunk is because people were talking about what to name it at a world fantasy convention, and uh, and David Scott said, "Yeah, they'll probably just call it Splatterpunk," and everybody laughed. And like half an hour later, it was all over the convention, and two months later, it was in Penthouse magazine where we're being interviewed and. And in you know the Village Voice and uh, and LA Times and stuff. So yeah, it was just you know the, the, the merits the merits of a funny word. Yeah, definitely an, an eye catching name. And, and I remember being a, a much younger me. And, and that's I mean right definition is what draws you in. Right, what you see is what draws you in. So sure. I think that definitely um, a, a lot of those names that uh, that, that you mentioned were. I don't know if influential. I'm not a writer, you know, but I think it influenced the way I read things, and and I think that that's fantastic. And like I said, we don't do, we haven't covered a lot of, we've covered some extreme horror on the podcast, right. but uh, um, there's definitely a merit there that goes far beyond um, just uh, good storytelling and stylistically um, how you choose to tell that story. Thank so, you. Yeah. I, I mean, so much of it was the approach. It, it, it was, in a lot of ways... Uh, it's it certainly uh, from from where I was coming from. It was very much a rock and roll sort of lit literature, uh, and uh, sort of a punk literature. Uh, but but I think you know there was cyberpunk and there were various other things. So it was just like this, you know, uh, blank punk. Anything with punk on it uh, worked just fine. Um, so. But no, I, I like literary uh, movement names that are hilarious. I, I like funny names. I, I, I'm doing a lot of stuff with the Bizarro scene right now, and, and when those guys contacted me, when when Carlton Mellick III and Rose O'Keefe uh, contacted me, um, saying that they were thinking of starting a new literary movement because uh, nobody wanted to buy their shit in the existing literary movements. Uh, they, you know, they, they were doing something special, and what the m- venues that were there didn't get it and didn't want it, but they knew they were onto something. So uh, they wrote me this letter and said, "We're thinking of of, of calling this Bizarro. What do you think?" 
I said, I think it's fucking great. Um, as a matter of fact, the way you're defining it, if, if this is the literature of weird, um, in which the central ingredient is its weirdness, that's what I've been doing the whole time. You know, horror was a, a modality by which I could express the crazy shit in my head. But it was less about the horror than it was about how weird the fucking world is. Mm-hmm. You know, and that was the angle of approach. So I, I, I was like, man, I'm with these guys all the way. And, and I still am. You know, now, now I edit uh, uh, an imprint there, and I'm also an editor for, uh, for Eraserhead and for Deadite. So I, I can acquire books for, for those as well. As well as Fungasm. Now, that takes us right into our next um, question. Cool. So, Fungasm being an imprint of Eraserhead, right? Yes. What's um, I know that there's several. There's Deadite, mm-hmm. and then there's Fungasm. Um, what? Lazy Fascist. Lazy, yeah, I'm sorry. Yes, Lazy Fascist. I knew there was like um, there's one that I'm missing at least. Yeah. So, what's the um, what's the main goal of Fungasm, or what is it you're you're kind of focusing on doing? Well, I'll tell you. Fungasm began um, with my friend Laura Lee Barr who I met when she auditioned for a music video I was directing. And we became very good friends. Uh, she's a, a playwright, a screenwriter, an actor, um, and just one of the loveliest human beings I, I know. And uh, uh, several years into our friendship, she said, hey, um, I, wrote, I spent seven years writing this book, and I think I'm done, and would you look at it? And tell me if it's any good, and if it's any good, where maybe I could sell it. So I said, "Fuck you." No, I, mean, I said, "No." I said, "Sure." <laughs> uh, and and um, so she went. Uh, uh, she, she's also a teacher. Uh, she went to some uh, teaching conference in Hawaii, and I read her book, and it wasn't good. It was amazing. It was really amazing. But the thing was, um, it was really abnormal. And it did not fit any marketing category. Any marketing department for any major publisher would slit its fucking throat uh, trying to figure out what to do with this thing. They would either say, this is too weird, we can't buy it, or they'd try to make her fix things, which means break things, take the interesting stuff out to turn it into a normal novel. And I'm like, I can't tell her that. I I can't. So I thought about it for a little while, and then I, I called up Rose in Portland from my place in L.A., I called her up and I said, listen, I want to form a publishing imprint for books that defy category, but that I love and that I think other people would love too. So it's kind of a boutique line in that sense. It's totally guided by my aesthetic, but um, I know what I love when I see it, and I know that there are certain things that don't even fit in Bizarro quite, although Bizarro is as close as you might Mm -hmm. get. Um, and I want to start with this book called Haunt by Laura Lee Barr and I want to call it Fungasm Press and Rose thought about it for a couple of seconds and then said sure Um, and so I had an imprint and uh, then I called Laura up in Hawaii and said "Uh, I know who's going to publish your book me and um, (laughs) And I told her the name of the press, and she said, all I want from life is a Fungasm Press t-shirt, which she now has, so I guess she's done. There you go. Yeah. Life is complete. Um, and from there, just from that one book, I, I built the whole thing. The next stuff I found was Violet Lavoie's writing. Uh, she's done two books for, for us. Uh, one called I Am Genghis Come, the other one, the other one called 
uh, I'll fuck anything that moves in Stephen Hawking. And, uh, <laughs> and, but you know, that's the thing. I have not read them, but I recognize both of those title names. I mean, because they're so good. Yeah, I mean, that's. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's how I stumbled on a Bizarro with Carlton Mellick and the Baby Jesus butt plug twenty oh. years ago or whatever it was. I mean. Bizarro has the best names. Oh, yeah. Flat out the best names. Uh, everything else wishes it was as fun. And the, the thing is, so much of uh, what plays as Bizarro is uh, if you were in a meeting, uh, say a Hollywood meeting for a movie or a show or something, and, and you're in the writer's room and people are throwing ideas around, there's always one idea that somebody throws out and everybody laughs their ass off. And then at the end, somebody says, but you know, we could never do that. Yeah. Bizarro does that. You go and do that fucking thing that they tell us we can't do, and that's where the fun is. And uh, so, yeah, I published Danger Slater. I've got uh, two of his books, I Will Rot Without You and uh, Puppet Skin. And his new one, He Digs a Hole, comes out uh, a little later in the year. Um, and I, I've got Deborah Gray's amazing um, um, Human Furniture, or The Quest for the Perfect Woman, which is sort of a... Uh, uh, a semi-fictive document on her time as a, uh, a sessionist where she would basically go to your hotel room uh, dressed as a Soviet spy and wrestle you to the ground or uh, uh, basically different forms of play uh, you know everything short of sex but definitely with a lot of like fantasy uh, uh, stuff built in yeah. and it's just a really great book and really honest and really fair to the people whose fantasies uh uh, uh, she responds, and this is a great book. And uh, uh, the amazing Autumn Christian, I don't know if you've heard of her, I, I just published her short story collection, uh, Ecstatic Inferno. She'll be here uh, a little later in the day. She's, uh, what, like 24 years old or something, and she's like three times smarter than I am. Um, and her prose reminds me of like a weird blend of, of Philip K. Dick and Poppy Z. Bright in that it's uh, got this, I'm not even kidding, man, where it's got this incredible, uh, juicy, southern gothic aesthetic mingled with this uh, 60s new wave science fiction, uh, uh, really idea-driven, really smart, really subversive, fucked up, amazing prose. She's brilliant. Uh, all of, every, everybody that I've picked up so far, I, I put like on a, a very, very high scale. And I know that uh, it's the kind of stuff. It's the kind of stuff I wish other people were publishing more, so I didn't have to do it. But I got to make up a funny word and uh, put out books and, and promote writers that I love. So you know, so far so good. I'm, I'm hoping, uh, you know, because it's such an indie. It, it's it's a tiny label, even by the context of say Eraserhead, you know, uh, which is much much better known than Fungasm. Um, um, we're, yeah, we're, we're, we're like the little red wagon attached to the, to the back of the Bizarro terrain. But it's a, it's, a, it's a hell of a family over there. That's yes. that's the one thing we've gotten from talking to, to Rose and other people in the yes. community is that it's a, it's probably the most cohesive group of people um, in, in, in that are working in writing today. There, there is a, an amazing bond with, between a lot of us, and, and it is really good. Um, it, that said, Bizarro is getting larger than its community. And uh, I think we're, we're seeing the, the stretch marks now. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's all, you know, uh, this is how life goes. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it's a great adventure. I, I'm, I'm, I'm loving the shit out of it. And I, love, I love my tribe. I love my tribe like crazy. All right. So what's exciting right now in horror? 
I would say the thing that excites me most is when somebody does something that I've never seen before, when, when somebody surprises my ass. Um, um, the last two books that floored me were Skullcrack City by uh, Jeremy Robert Johnson, which is arguably at least as bizarro as it is horror, but uh, um, <laughs> but man, is that a crazy jam, and, and what an incredible ending. And Yeah, it's just... Uh, that's that's as good a book as as I could ask for. Uh, the other one was Josh Mallerman's Bird Box, uh, which I, I just absolutely love. Uh, I love his idiosyncratic style. I love the fact that uh, uh, although he's a voracious reader and student of horror, what he's actually spinning out is not uh, in any way regurgitating the old formulas. He's finding new ways to do stuff because he's he's his own kind of thinker. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that dude is bizarro down to his toenails, uh, and nobody's called him that, but I just did. I just called you out, Mallerman. <laughs> um, and, um, yeah, to me, honestly, what I, horror as a genre interests me less than horror as an ingredient properly played in a larger form of fiction uh, in which horror uh, uh, represents the black and the red parts uh, but then there's all the other parts of the rainbow that are equally important, uh, like, you know, the soul, um, and not just whether Satan will grab it. And, you know, even getting past, uh, I think, the kind of remedial good guys versus bad guys stuff, which I've been fighting since Splatterpunk, um, because I think it's bullshit. Um, you know, most of us are, uh, you know, somewhere in between. Uh, very few of us uh, achieve sainthood or monstrousness. We're falling somewhere along a, 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 a continuum, and um, and I mean, I, I am a god guy. I, I, I my experience is that uh, that the universe is is sentient and uh, and aware of what it's doing, and that we are manifestations of it rather than independent objects dropped in the middle of it. Uh, that said. Uh, um, uh, uh, the god I'm friends with isn't a guy with a beard that's waggling his finger at me and, and setting his his pointy ear, you know his little pointed uh, headed uh, devil guy to, to, to fuck with me. Um, so so that's kind of how I feel about horror. Now, what excites me personally to do right now, uh, aside from editing other people's stuff, I, I, I'm really digging writing short stories, but mostly. I'm a film director now. That's mostly what I do. I, I make movies, and eighty percent of my writing at this point is writing about writing the screenplays for the movies I want to actually make. Movies I want to actually make. Um, and um, I'm working with uh, Andrew Cash, who he and I directed uh, a segment of the movie Tales of Halloween that came out. Yeah. Uh, Which segment? We did uh, This Means War. With the uh, uh, two guys with the rival Halloween yard decorations, yes. mm-hmm. with starring Dana Gould, the great mm-hmm. co- comedian Dana Gould, and uh, and Jimmy Duvall mm-hmm. from Donnie Darko mm-hmm. and uh, a million other things. Not to um, interrupt, but just had to. Hi, you're. I'm in an interview. Yeah. Hi. Sorry. Hey. Bad nerve of you. Yeah. I, <laughs> I just got a hug. It was good. Um, Nobody's hugged us. Just saying. You don't have to call her back, right? It's cool. Um, so, um, yeah, to me, what's really, my new frontier is making movies that nobody's ever seen before. 
and uh, really looking forward to doing that. Uh, I, I wrote two uh, feature screenplays and developed a, uh, a TV series uh, and wrote the pilot in the last three months of last year. Uh, it, just an insane marathon of, of jamming, uh, some of with uh, the, the TV series uh, I developed with Laura Lee Barr and Shane McKenzie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the scripts I wrote with Shane McKenzie and one of the scripts I wrote with Cody, Cody Goodfellow. And now I'm doing another one uh, by myself uh, to hopefully shoot this summer in my new house because I have uh, I just landed in a new house that is so visually intriguing uh, that it's, it's yanking a story out of me and uh, I, I can't wait to fucking shoot it. I have trouble reconciling the fact that you're writing something with Shane McKenzie that you think might get on TV. Not, not because of the quality of the work. Right. But, but that, again, kind of like you said, I think you may have to, much like, like, like people went and created their own, um, their own publishing house to get this stuff out there, you may have to buy a TV network. <laughs> I I'm thinking that. that <laughs> you know, here's the thing. Um, the work that Shane and I did together has some outrageous stuff that happens in it. But it's very controlled, and it's very uh, it's it's very uh, viewer friendly, um, and I, I think where cable has gone and where uh, the you know the on, the the streaming services mm-hmm. have gone, um, I think there's going to be a market for for what we just came up with, and Shane and Laura and I uh, do a really interesting balancing act between us. So there's a lot of layers. Um, uh, psychological layers and character layers and and cultural stuff, uh, but when the shit hits the fan, it hits it like real fucking hard, uh, which is awesome. Which is part of why I brought Shane in because I just knew there would be moments where it's like, okay, did let her rip. You know? <laughs> Recently, I watched the first season of Preacher, mm. and I thought this is the craziest shit I've ever seen on TV. Right. And then I watched Legion, mm. which is now the craziest shit I've ever seen on TV. So mm. it does seem like there's a little bit of a market opening up for things that are a little less clean cut. Oh, no uh, question about it. So, yeah. you, you know, the, the third golden age of television began with The Sopranos. Mm. Um, and, uh, and it's really, really interesting because at that point, uh, no anti-hero on that level could have ever uh, owned the show. Mm and uh, had millions of people fall in love with them despite the fact that they were brutal psychotics. Uh, and so that really opened the door wide open, man. Uh, that and Breaking Bad and a handful of others uh, signaled the way. Obviously, The Walking Dead has, has uh, widely opened the amount of, of on-screen carnage you can put on a, a TV show. And, yeah, I, I would say... And the other thing is, is that television is a writer's medium... Uh, in a way that film never will be unless you are the filmmaker yourself. That's why I became a filmmaker. That's why I, I, uh, at a certain point, I moved to Hollywood um, um, because there was interest in uh, the Skip Inspector books. There was interest in The Light at the End and uh, Deadlines and a couple of the other ones. And uh, Oliver Stone wanted to make an anime version of The Bridge in the 90s. So a lot of crazy stuff was happening. And then it all fell apart. And uh, I had a nervous breakdown. And part of my nervous breakdown had to do with the fact that everybody in Hollywood was telling me I was like the, the best thing in the world and nobody would... I was just being dragged along. After a while, it just kind of like snapped me. 
Uh, and what I realized is, if I want to work in this field, I have to become a filmmaker. I have to learn what producers do. I have to learn what directors do. I have to learn the job of every single person on the film set and in the entire operating structure from marketing to uh, financing and distribution. I have to understand all these things and be able to talk with these people as an equal, uh, knowing their job as well as they do, so that, or at least well enough to be able to talk with them in a uh, in what the scientist Buckminster Fuller used to call deliberate generalism, where you know enough about everything that you can talk with anyone. And, uh, and in that way, I'm a filmmaker and not just a guy squirting out uh, notes that other people feel like they can scribble all over and turn into whatever the fuck and pay me or not, depending on whether they feel like uh, the risking me suing them uh, or, uh, or, you know, shit. Nightmare 5, you know, we had to threaten them with legal action to get our names on that stuff after we got uh, fired on it. And then we saw the piece of shit movie that they made and it was almost like, can, can we take our names off? I'm sorry. <laughs> um, and, yeah, I mean, that, that experience alone informed me that, uh, that being a screenwriter uh, without actually being a filmmaker was, like, worse than working at Burger King. Um, it was sort of like uh, the, the line I like to use. It's like the human furniture, only the human centipede, only with less dignity. Um, and, uh, and I'm going to say that on the, the nice screenwriting panel in, a, in like you know an hour. Um, but yeah, I had to become a filmmaker. I had to learn those things, and learning those things has been some of the most fun I've ever had. If there's any note for me to end on, it's probably that one. I'm, I'm having crazy fun. Uh, doing this stuff and I'm letting uh, in, in terms of, of new novels and stuff I'm finding other writers who are writing the books that I would want to read and helping them get that out and that's taking care of that part of the equation for me if that makes sense it makes perfect sense thanks for taking time out of a busy schedule to talk to us it's been a lot of fun absolutely thank you man okay what you just heard was our interview with Ellen Datlow followed by our interview with John Skip gotta say both of them uh, just delightful Great people. I've uh, I've been saying this to, to Rob and to pretty much anybody to, that'll listen. Not that I don't enjoy the interviews we do um, on a regular basis, because I do. But we did five interviews, and all five of these people were just goddamn fascinating. And I've been saying this outside the podcast, so I just want people to understand. This is like what I tell my family members and my friends. They're like, how was it? I was like, our interviews are phenomenal. So really excited to have talked to both of them. Ellen Datlow is an absolutely wonderful woman. Um, it, even our conversations that didn't make it into this interview were all a, a lot of fun and entertaining, and she's definitely uh, my kind of people. Yeah. Um, same with John Skip. Like, it was great because he came rushing down. And, um, well, there's a little story behind the whole <laughs> being double booked. There was a little chaos around meeting up with John Skip. But um, he goes rushing toward the... We were, like, waiting outside the door we were supposed to meet him at because we knew that someone else was in there. And he, and he like, rushes past us, and we're like, oh, hey. And he, like, quickly shakes our hand, and he's like, I have to go get interviewed. And we're like, yeah, that's with us. <laughs> so, And then he, like, slowed down. But he was just, like, so... I, I loved that he was so dedicated to the the motion of getting to the interview. Um, because I really feel like not a lot of people put through the effort like i've never seen the effort so maybe they do <laughs> but like i got to witness what people do before they get interviewed by us and it's like a brand new thing for me so uh it's pretty cool very true i fully expect that um we have not heard the last of john skip on booked 
Well, I hope not. I hope not. Yeah. So, um, yeah, this <laughs> is both wonderful, wonderful interviews. Um, and I think that was our first break in during an interview in, yeah, in the six years. Because any other time it would be in Just, your home, and yeah. that's horrifying. So. <laughs> well, we did have that one time where we were waiting to get on the line with Christopher Dwyer, and the fire alarm went off in my apartment. Um, which delayed things, but that didn't, that just got edited out. So I think this is the yeah. first time you get to see, like you didn't see the seething anger on Livius's face, <laughs> but it was there. <laughs> I, I, and you know, I, I edited that and I want you to understand how many times I was able to take out stuff that you guys didn't hear, you know, where someone was coming through the hallway and we all kind of stopped and took it out. It was, it was definitely a trial and, and thank you to John Skip for being so understanding. Um, Felt a little unprofessional on, on our part, you know, not not by any doing of ours, but, um, you know, I apologize and I, I thank him for being as, as courteous as he was. And so now, you know, when you're working with someone who understands that the finished product is going to be different than what's happening now, because he would hear that door squeak and he would pause and he would restate his answer sometimes. So I feel like he knew what we were up against and, and he tried to help us as much as possible. So big thanks to him for that. Um, because yeah, not everybody's going to know, Oh, that, you know, it's going to sound terrible when that door is slamming behind my answer to your question, like that type of thing. All right. In the coming weeks, I guess we'll say, since uh, we've had some stuff kind of break in on our StokerCon rhythm, you will be hearing interviews with Nancy Holder, Becky Spratford, F Paul Wilson, did you have anything you wanted to say about that, Rob, about any of those three interviews? That... <laughs> well, well, I was going to give I was giving you a wide berth on F. Paul Wilson. So <laughs> I got to tell you, it's not that I, it's not that I don't love everybody, everybody we've interviewed on this show. But getting to meet F. Paul Wilson, um, definitely a highlight of my podcasting career. Um, All right. So before you before you move on, I want to tell you, I was talking to former I'm calling him former now marketing intern Ryan. Uh, mm -hmm. last night and Ryan is on like a shared photo stream that I was putting up some uh, photos from our trip and one of the photos was the photo of Livius standing with F. Paul Wilson and last night you know uh, on his own just he brought it up on his own he says who's the author that Livius is posing with in that picture where he looks like he's the happiest he's ever been in his life <laughs> It was F. Paul Wilson, in case you weren't, in case that you were, photo, yeah. that photo will likely make, make its way to Instagram. If you're not following book podcast on Instagram, that'll, that'll probably be there. Yeah, I was, I was a little, I was, I was a fanboy. That was definitely um, a, a very, very special uh, moment um, for me. I've been reading F. Paul Wilson for probably 20 years now. Yeah. Um, very excited to be able to meet him and, and a short interview because of a time crunch and stuff. And because I couldn't. Couldn't bring myself to just bullshitting with that guy like, like we do with authors all the time. I was just you were too... so respectful. Oh my god! Like, so uh... like I, in my mind, I'm like he's probably thinking we're taking his time away. Like I don't want to take his time. Like you were being so respectful and like polite and shit. Yep. Not, so, not like um, I can do that. Rob <laughs> has evidence that I can do that. That I can be respectful and polite and, yeah. and respect other people's time. Yeah, because I've never experienced it on my own. So that's correct. <laughs> for so... Paul Wilson to come along. <laughs> Rob's trying to get F. Paul to just sit in on these podcasts so that so that I'll be a new human being. Hey, F. Paul Wilson, what are you doing once a week? Yeah. 
<laughs> so, uh, and then we're going to bring you the panel that we were on, which is called Between the Ears, Podcasting Something or Another. Matt, I wasn't... It had a really long title. We, we weren't involved in the naming of the panel. Um, that's... <laughs> would have been called, been called the hot seat. Would have been called the hot seat. And um, with a picture, like, of a chair with flames coming off of it. Or maybe a chair with flames on it. I don't know. But anyway... Yeah, um, the panel was moderated by Lee Murray, who is a writer who is came who flew from New Zealand, right? Yes, and she was absolutely delightful and a wonderful moderator. Yeah, just for this. Yeah, but um, she did that thing foreigners do. So, so I friended her on Facebook. Uh-oh, um, here we go. The, the day of the panel. No. Like, they travel to, like, I don't know, like, five other cities. Like, when you and I go somewhere, we go to one place for, like, four days or five days, yeah. and we come back. So she may still be here in the States, for all I know. Oh, so she's doing, like, a, well, while I'm out there, I'm going to see all the places kind of thing? Like a, like mean, a smart that, person does? Everybody that I've seen from the U.K. that comes to the United States does yeah. exactly that. They're like, oh, we're going to New York, and then Los Angeles, and then we're stopping in Houston before we come back home. And you and yeah. I barely left the house we rented in Long Beach. Can we talk a little bit about that house? Let's talk a little. Would you want to talk about who the other people on the panel were first? Oh, yeah. I guess we can talk about those people. So since it was a horror and podcasting themed or, or whatever you want to call it, panel, um, co-paneling with us, I guess you would call it, uh, Michael Paul Gonzalez from Larkspur Underground, who um, has a longtime friend of the podcast. Um, he did Thunderdome press. He did that LA in a thousand words, um, in search of a city thing. He published, um, Amanda Gowan's radium girls. Yeah. He's a longtime friend of the podcast. And then Alex Heffelich. I'm just going to say that's how you pronounce his name. Co-editor. Sounds good to me. For the pseudopod podcast joined us, uh, joined us for part of that panel too. More on that in upcoming episodes, but that's pretty awesome content to be bringing people, I think. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about that. Um, not so excited about how Michael Gonzalez was tapping on the table that the recorder was on, but hopefully that <laughs> won't uh, detract from the sound too much, but we'll see. But yeah, um, I would say 100% more content coming out of this conference than any other conference we've ever attended. <laughs> Mathematically, I checked and you are correct. 100%, yeah, 100% more. more. 100% more. Yeah. Numbers sell things. I don't know if you knew that. Eighty percent. You get eighty percent more sales when you put a fucking number in what you're talking about. Explain this to me. I don't know. I just made it up because it sounded good. Okay, I have no idea what you're saying right now. Um, you want to talk about our uh, our casa de booked? All right. So um, credit to um, friend our our personal friend Diana um, for tipping friend of the podcast, Jesse Lawrence, uh, off to the, the, the rental that we ended up staying in as a, like a full house, not from, it wasn't full house. We weren't on full house. Don't get excited. It's Uncle but Jesse, it was... <laughs> Uncle Jesse, we got to get to the boat for our panel. <laughs> and I was like, cut it out. <laughs> and I made that little, like the scissors and then pointing and then the air. Anyway, um, big ass house, um, right like a block away from the sand. We were right at the beach. Did you go to the beach at all? I did. I did, but it was really windy and kind of chilly when I was there. Yeah. 
LA was uh, was experiencing unprecedented wind, and by that I mean they had any wind at all, which apparently they never do, or it's a different wind. Oh, it was explained to us. Diana explained it to us because she's smart. Um, they have this like a normal wind, and then there was like a different wind coming from a different direction, which was um, making everybody's allergies go nuts and stuff like that. But it was also messing up beach time a little bit. It was, but I, the the parasailers, yeah, those guys were loving it, absolutely loving it. Those sails were in the air, so um, big-ass house, and the nice thing was everybody just got to hang out there, so there wasn't that pressure. Like, when you go to a conference and you stay at a hotel, you have to go out for lunch, and you have to go out for dinner, and you have to da-da-da, and even though, you know, we did go out a lot, we had that comfort of just having a place to relax, and we were sitting on the rooftop deck having drinks and talking about life, and it was very, very, it was the most relaxing of any of these conferences I've ever been at. And if these guys thought I was excited about meeting F. Paul Wilson, I finally got to meet Craig Clevenger in the flesh, and that was uh, the highlight of my trip. Um, yeah, no, no worries, Mr. Clevenger. There is no photographic evidence that this took place. Um, but yeah, Craig came around uh, specifically to hang out with us, so um, that was really cool. Um, it's always great to see him and talk to him and everything. Um, Absolutely. We actually had a moment where two-thirds of, of the author's that the Velvet website were based on were together. We had Craig Clevenger and Stephen Graham Jones hanging out with us on a haunted boat, drinking cocktails and talking about, oh, and comparing knife. Like, did you, did the knife thing? Yeah, I I felt like we came really under, under weaponed. I don't know, underarmed. Yeah, under. <laughs> underarmed sounds really weird. <laughs> but like yeah. With under, we all have underarms. Yes. Well, I but guess... yeah, we came in with with shockingly fewer weapons than yeah. some of the writers on the, that were on that boat at that time. Yeah, it, well, so the strange thing, so we uh, we're all kind of assembling at a table and a kind of outside area of one of the bars on the Queen Mary, and for some reason, Stephen puts his knife on the table, and it's as Craig is walking up, and Craig's just like, "Oh, is that a blah blah blah?" And he names the the company that makes the knife, and Stephen's like. Yep. And then Craig just pulls out his knife. But then Stephen was talking about how he broke his knife once. And I was like, how do you break one of these knives? It was just, I don't know, man. It was a weird moment. But overall. Things you and I don't understand is what it comes down to. Knives. I don't understand knives. But um, it was great. It was great to have Craig out. It was great to um, have that brief moment where Craig and Stephen were hanging out with us. Um, but overall, man, just, I, I couldn't have asked for things to go better. Indeed, I agree. Um, and we will have a lot more of this for you in the upcoming weeks. I can't, uh, I, I can't stress enough how great the content uh, that we got is. Um, today was just a taste. But uh, next week, next week, we're going back to a more traditional. And when I say traditional, we're going way back here because we're going to review a book. We're going to review a short film, kind of, or maybe at least talk about it. And we're going to interview an author. That's the kind of shit we haven't done in a really long time. Yeah, and I think that's what you call being triple booked. Oh, God, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Man, it's getting it's going to be time to, to kind of wrap this one up. Yeah. So um, the next episode, I guess we should talk. Would you like to introduce who's going to be on our next episode? Oh, who's yeah, because we just, yeah, randomly. Who's getting triple booked? So, uh, yeah, it's going to be, um, he's been on the podcast before, I think at least twice, Jeremy Robert Johnson, 
um, who is a bizarro, he's a bizarro author. He's just like, a, a, just an awesome dude. So we will be re reviewing his collection of short stories called Entropy and Bloom and um, having him on for an interview as well. And then there might be like Livius kind of teased a little, uh, a little something or other with a video that might be related to stuff that's going on with Jeremy as well. Until then, um, if you need more of us, we're over at The View Podcast, uh, reviewing Twin Peaks, and we're, we're closing in on the end of Season 2. So uh, we're going to let you guys go so we can get that episode uh, rolling. Until next time, I'm Livia Snedden. Now I'm Rob Olson. Keep reading.